Hey, welcome to Small Findings. This is a podcast where I find things out and I tell you about them. Some of these findings are things that you may have already known, in which case you get to hear my cool take on them. Or they might be things that you also didn't know, in which case you get to learn and grow. So the findings this week are glaciers. What are they actually? And how does the Milankovitch cycle affect them? And how does all of that affect the climate? We also have, what is it like to teach school children? And finally, I have to update my impression of Nassim Nicholas Taleb from last episode. All right, on to the findings. I've started reading Moving to Higher Ground by John Englander, which is a book that is basically about the title. It's about dealing with sea level rise by moving to more stable places, to higher locations. But I haven't actually gotten to that part yet because the first couple of chapters are about climate change basics. There are some very basic things that I actually didn't understand about climate change. The first thing I'm afraid I have to say is my idea of what a glacier was was not right. Uh, I know, I knew that there were large bodies of ice that uh, grew when it was cold and shrunk when it was warm, but I always imagined them as being large ice sheets, kind of in the shapes of blobs. Um, but they're they're actually more like frozen rivers. They're they're really long. They're you know, up to hundreds of miles long and at most two miles thick. They're they're not like giant ponds or something like that. And there's at least 200,000 of them. Uh, well, at least 200,000 that are being tracked, so there's probably more. The other thing I didn't understand before or didn't realize before is that it's not ice melting generally that causes sea level rise. It's ice that's on land. Because if you melt ice that's already in the water, it's not going to cause sea level rise because uh, that ice will actually take up a little less volume as water. But if you melt ice that's on the land, right, that that water will go into the into the ocean, and therefore it will make the sea level rise because that water was never in the ocean before. And one of the other things that causes sea level rise without melting any ice is just heating up the water because water takes up more more volume the warmer it is. I also found out from this book about the Milankovitch cycles. It mentions these, but defers to its website to explain it. And I, I don't... While I think the book explains things well, I don't think it explained the Milankovitch cycles that well, but luckily, 
NASA has explained a lot about this, and their explanation is really good. The Milankovitch cycles track three aspects of the Earth's position in space. And it uses that to predict, or I'm sorry, I should say explain, I guess, because uh, a lot of this is applied to the past. Uh, these cycles explain when the, the glaciers are growing on Earth and when they're shrinking. And the three aspects of the Earth's position in space are precession, which, precession, which uh, is how the Earth wobbles on its axis as a result of being pulled by the sun and the moon. There is uh, eccentricity, which is how elliptical the Earth's orbit is, because the, Earth, uh, the Earth's orbit varies between very close to a perfect circle and to something more elliptical. Uh, this, at its most elliptical, um, 23% more solar radiation reaches the Earth at the closest point in the orbit. Um, I think the biggest factor, though, is ubiquity. So it's the variation in the Earth's tilt. The range of the Earth's uh, tilt is between 22.1 degrees and 24.5 degrees. The greater the tilt, the more extreme the seasons. Uh, as you may know, we have seasons in the first place because the Earth is tilted at all. So when we are in the hemisphere that is tilted toward the sun during one part of the orbit, that's when we have summer. When, when we're in another part of the orbit in which the tilt uh, results in us being pointed, leaning away from the sun. That's when we have winter. The, the greater the tilt, though, the more extreme the seasons. If the tilt is, is greater when, uh, when you're tilted towards the sun, you have an even hotter summer, and you have an even colder winter when you're tilted away. So you might think that things would even out, but they don't even out for the glaciers. When you have a hotter summer, the glaciers melt. When you are in a part of the cycle in which uh, you have the hotter summers and colder winters, it's not like the colder winters result in the glaciers growing back at the same rate that they melted and left and went into the sea. 6,000 years ago, we started a cycle in which the glaciers were growing and the Earth was getting cooler. But as you know, right now the Earth is not getting cooler and glaciers are melting. So this was a surprise to me because I've heard it repeated so many times th that uh, the Earth was going to warm up anyway and the debate was about, was about whether or not uh, man-made carbon emissions has sped that up, but even the first part of that isn't true. Uh, that's just been repeated so many times that everyone is like, well, I'll just focus on the second part of the statement. Uh, but no, the Earth should not be warming up right now at all. 
So that is how, how, how intense the effects of the carbon emissions have been. They've actually sort of reversed the direction of the glacial growth. I'll keep on reading this, and if I find any more cheerful findings like this, I will share them with you. I finished reading Among School Children by Tracy Kidder. You might know Tracy Kidder from the book Soul of a New Machine. It was a fairly uh, famous book uh, about this team of engineers at DEC, I think in the 70s, that had built uh, a computer. They were racing to build a computer uh, in time to be competitive, uh, both uh, with uh, another team in their company and, you know, in general. And it explained a lot of things that people didn't understand about uh, working with technology, things like crunch and uh, passion, which, of course, we know now to be a bit of a tricky thing. But uh, he did a really excellent job of, of capturing uh, what it was like to work on something like that. Among school children is similar, except he spent an entire year in a classroom in, I think, 1987 or 1988. The main finding is not really conveyable in podcast format. Um, basically, by reading through a year of uh, this teacher's work in a classroom, you get a sense. Uh, you get a sense of what it was like. And that's not something that could be reduced to any kind of fact. Um, in short, it's very difficult, <laughs> as maybe you guessed, maybe you didn't, but um, there's somewhere somewhere in the beginning, um, he mentions, kind of annoyingly, he mentions there's a famous study that says that teachers go through 200 personal interactions per hour. Now, he doesn't really cite what that famous study is, and I'm, I'm not well-versed enough to know what that is, so I, I can't say whether that's true or not. But if, if you ever watched, like, a first-grade teacher, um, there, there are, it is believable that they hit at least 100 personal interactions per hour. Um, and even, even with a, a class of, like, 14 or 15 kids, I think they could hit that. So staying on top of that all the time is is probably pretty brutal. <clears throat> uh, one of the main themes of the book is there are, when you have uh, kids that have problems or uh, have really special needs and there's only one teacher, a disproportionate amount of time is spent with with like in in this story um and it's actually not a story in this book um this teacher spent an incredible amount of time with one or two children that uh had a lot of problems because of 
their backgrounds and family lives. And, um, you know, the big struggle was, okay, do I, do I send this kid away to, uh, some other program where, you know, I don't think this kid is going to get any help and maybe doomed, or do I neglect these other 20 kids? So that, that is actually why I like, um, the system that they have in, in some modern schools, like uh, like locally in the Cambridge public schools, um, at the elementary school level, there seem to be always at least two teachers. There's like a lead teacher, an assistant teacher, and then various specialists for reading, math, um, social stuff, that kind of thing. Um, the... Yeah, I, I was wondering about, um, you know, what happened to this, uh, to this teacher and these kids afterwards. Um, the kids are, of course, properly anonymized, so there's not much you could find out about them. But the, the teacher, Mrs. Zajac, that is apparently her real name, it was not anonymized. She became a bit of a celebrity, was interviewed by the New York Times... Um, but that seemed to only have lasted for a year, which, you know, probably is about as much as anyone would want. Uh, and then she just went back to, to teaching. She, um, I think she is now 57 years old. I think she was 30 in her mid thirties in the book. And she ended up being a teacher for 20 years and then became an assistant principal for 11 years and then a principal for four years. Uh, and then... She became Grand Marshal of a parade in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where she lived and teached, uh, lived and taught. Oh, boy. Uh, And that was in 2019. There is uh, a 2017 article in The Atlantic uh, with, has like a follow-up with her about um, probably the most, most troublesome student uh, who eventually uh, ended up getting evaluated by the district and moved out of her classroom. Uh, he's nicknamed Clarence in the book. And there's not really anything satisfying to hear about that. He, he did come back to talk to her years later as a teenager, but she couldn't really tell whether or not he was telling the truth about anything or not, so not much could be concluded there. So... That is among school children. It's it's more of a thing where you uh, you learn by by feeling it, I guess you could say, or getting aggregate impressions, than by getting any sort of brief podcast segment facts. <laughs> two episodes, I talked about Nassim Nicholas Taleb's paper about how Bitcoin is not a suitable currency. And then, the episode after that, I corrected my implication that he was a student at NYU from the previous episode, because I saw his Wikipedia article, which is very impressive, and said that he was a professor. 
And then I think I generally gave the impression that he's probably really smart and his stuff is amazing. Well, today I have to correct that a little bit because I checked out his book from the library, Skin in the Game, and it's not good. He's, um, I think his Bitcoin uh, paper is, you know, is backed by sources and makes sense to me. His book reads like some kind of stream of consciousness thing, and it is it does seem to be mostly assertions. And, uh, in fact, it reads like a giant tweet storm. And I was reminded of Twitter because the quotes on the back are, I think, six out of seven of them are from Twitter randos. And then uh, somewhere in the book, he talks about how he doesn't trust book reviewers because uh, I guess they don't have enough skin in the game. Uh, Hence these guys who have a lot of skin in the game, the Twitter randos. Uh, I went maybe about 40 pages into it, and uh, I took these things away from it. He, his main principle uh, in the book is that if people don't have skin in the game, they don't make good decisions, and they don't feel consequences, and that makes a lot of sense. But again, if your writing style is incoherent and you don't connect things to facts, it's really hard to prove something like that. Uh, Somebody I know online mentioned that he read this book and he kept wishing this guy had an editor. I was able to, to read about 40 pages of this. And here's what I took away from it. He... He loves tough warriors, so at some point he talks about uh, a few Roman empires that went into battle and died in battle. And this is an example of having skin in the game. The thing about this is, Romans pioneered not having skin in the game when it came to war. They started the professional military. So in the days of the Roman Republic, farmers and other normal people would have to go to war if there was a war. Then they started the professional military where there are these people who did nothing but soldiering. So when it was time to say, hey, let's conquer this place and take over this place, people were like, sure, I don't have to go. As for the Roman emperors actually being in battles, they, they were there at the battlefield, I guess, but they didn't actually like go to the front lines and like battle people. Uh, they had extremely good bodyguards, and I guess there was some risk to them in like the cases of like some of these emperors where their battle went extremely bad, and then they would die. But they weren't there because they thought, well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take this risk. They just didn't really think that would happen to them. They they're just standing there watching uh, this battle, and they they were most of the time extremely safe. I think he gives the example of how even today monarchs go to battle because uh, they have skin in the game. And the ridiculous, the amazing example he gives is of the British royal family. He talks about how Prince Andrew 
went to war in the Falklands in the 80s. So, I don't know. Maybe Prince Andrew actually experienced some risk, but that's one one member of the the royal family uh, out of, I don't know how many are, how many are there? 300? I, I guess this is not a finding I have for you. But generally, when Britain uh, engages in military action, uh, the royal family is not at any real risk. They do not have skin in the game. And, you know, they may stand a profit from war. I don't know. Uh, the other thing I took away from this is he loves Fat Tony from The Sopranos. He keeps bringing it up. He uh, keeps naming sections like Forget About, spelled F-U-H-G-E-T-A-B-O-U-D. Forget About Universalism. And I think that was a section where he talked about how uh, Fat Tony was more correct than Kant, or, or something like that. Uh, he liked to uh, talk about um, how... I, I think he'd quote Fat Tony, and it would be like the, the one Fat Tony quote I remember was, you know, be nice to everyone you know, but if someone tries to exercise power over you, you exercise power over them. <laughs> I, I, I don't really know how this relates to the skin of the game, but it certainly seemed very tough. Like a tough mob boss. Whereas who, again, a mob boss doesn't really have that much skin in the game. They do die sometimes, but, you know, the nice thing about being a boss at the top of hierarchy is you don't really put yourself at that much risk. I haven't watched The Sopranos, so maybe, maybe, you know, Fat Tony is not like the Godfather or something, and he goes out and gets shot at or something like that. The other thing about uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb is he's a libertarian. Um, he thinks that, uh, I think he said, regulation chokes life. And he said that instead of regulating what people, what how we should make sure that corporations behave is by um, allowing people to sue them after they do something that's bad. And he feels that's that's going to be enough of a deterrent. So a corporation pollutes a neighborhood, uh, everybody's children are debilitated for life, and then you sue them afterwards, and then that will stop future corporations from doing that again. And unfortunately, I you know, this, this guy has to know... He has to know what corporations are for, right? They are exactly for shielding the people that make these decisions. Corporations are about not having skin in the game. So you're an executive. You could pollute a neighborhood or uh, sell somebody's data to, you know, target them for with, you know, totalitarian fascist messages or something. And it could make you a lot of money. It could, it could uh, pump up pump up your stock, you could uh, dump it, then quit, and you could be fine. And your, your corporation will be sued, not you. So that's, that's not really a deterrent, I think. So my finding here is he's, he's not as rational and as brilliant a thinker as his Wikipedia article made him out to be. 
and I apologize if I gave that impression, which I probably did. And that's all the findings for this week. If you have any comments about those findings, or have any findings of your own that you want to share, email me at smallfindings at fastmail.com. You could also use it to do anything else that I have, do any other kind of communicating that I haven't thought of there. Oh, also one more thing. I'm going to be starting a six-week training program next Monday. So I may not be able to get episodes out during that time, but if that's the case, I will get back to it when I'm done. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.